Victor Picard is a professor of media policy and political economy at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. He is also the co-director of the university's Media Inequality and Change Center. He has been writing about the crisis facing journalism for over a decade and recently published a book titled Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. Along with his colleague Timothy Neff, Victor recently published an article in the Columbia Journalism Review about the lack of funding the American government has traditionally offered publicly funded media. Victor previously taught at NYU and the University of Virginia and has worked in Washington, D.C. for various media reform organizations and think tanks. Victor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Gabe. So, Victor, you have devoted um, your career to uh, observing the media, democracy, um, but more specifically, and the reason I have you on is uh, the topic of uh, the crisis facing local journalism and journalism at large. Um, I wanted to first ask you, how did you end up choosing this career? Why, why did you decide to kind of focus your life's work on these matters? Was it like a certain event that happened in your life or did it just slowly come to you? Yes, excellent question. And I, I'm sure I could uh, bore your listeners for many hours with a, with a long-winded answer. I'll try to be very succinct, which is that I didn't plan on becoming an academic. I didn't plan on focusing on media or become concerned about the future of journalism. But I started out as an activist. I lived out of the country for a number of years. And when I came back in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a, a lot of a lot of things were going on. A lot of thing, a lot of problems were very clear, uh, and it was clear that media played a central role in these problems, especially in things such as the run up to the Iraq War. And I was involved with the indie media movement. Some of your listeners might recall the Independent Media Center, which was sort of like a pre-blog, uh, radical, radically democratic, open publishing newswire. And it had these nodes around around the world. And uh, I volunteered for the first one, which was in Seattle and rose up uh, during the WTO protests. It was a major part of the global justice movement. So I basically went into the field of media studies with the assumption that whatever our problem, whatever our concerns are, whatever political movement we're aligned with, we're going to have to change our media system that needs to be at least our, as media reformers often say, whatever your first concern is, media reform should be your second concern because you're not going to get very far on your primary uh, political objective without a media system that's open to diverse ideas. So that's a long way of saying that I, I came to this not as an academic, but as an activist. And I, and I believe in you know some of the stuff that we all learned in school, which is a democracy requires a free and functional press system and that's clearly been it's always been flawed but it's clearly crumbling before our eyes today and so that's why i'm very much focused on this issue about not just worrying about you know saving journalism but really about reinventing it and creating a media system that's open to these progressive ideas 
Got it. Okay. So for the purposes of this podcast episode, I wanted to talk about the Columbia Journalism Reveal Review article that you published in June, um, along with Timothy Neff, a colleague of yours at UPenn. Um, but before we get to that, I, I kind of wanted to back up a little bit because there was a paper that you wrote in 2009. Uh, it's titled Saving the News Toward a National Journalism Strategy. And the reason I bring that up is because I think it's, it's really kind of a good um, starting place to kind of set the stage for what we're talking about. In that uh, paper, you do talk about some of the themes in the Columbia Journalism uh, uh, review piece as well I saw um, but and and this paper uh, was written in 2009 um, for for folks uh, uh, who are listening um, can you give us a little bit of background on what inspired you to to s- publish this this paper and since it was 12 years ago how have things changed? since then. I imagine that you sort of might look back at that paper and go, oh, maybe I would have changed this, changed that. Or, or and s- since I read it, a lot of the things actually remain true to today. So yeah, what, what inspired you to publish it and, and how have things changed? Yeah, great question. And I think I actually can pick up on a thread that I mentioned earlier to try to make sense of that earlier study in 2009, which is as I had entered graduate school and became increasingly involved with what was then referred to as either the media democracy movement or media reform movement, also media justice movement. These were all kind of intertwined uh, movements that were very much focused on changing radically and structurally changing our media system. I uh, During that time, I became uh, very much involved with Free Press, uh, which was founded by, by my academic advisor, Bob McChesney. And I was working for Free Press in 2008, 2009, uh, when I was commissioned to author this report. I was a primary author. I, I co-wrote it with Craig Aaron and, and, and Josh Stearns. And basically, uh, this is somewhat troubling because we identified the problem now over a decade ago. And we came up with some proposals uh, to try to shore up the kind of journalism that democracy requires that clearly was not being supported by the market. And so we recommended things such as uh, expanding our public broadcasting system and transitioning, transitioning it into more of a public media system. We called for a new federal writers project, uh, which is inspired by a project from the New Deal era where we directly subsidize uh, journalists to focus on public service journalism. Uh, We had a number of small bore uh, proposals like changing tax laws, uh, incentivizing uh, news organizations to, again, focus on the on the public service type of media, you know, not just the stuff that entertains us, but the stuff that actually informs us and makes democracy possible. And all these things we said, you know, well over a decade ago, and things have gotten only worse um, in this in, in the interim, so that I would argue in many ways, unfortunately, we pretty much wasted a decade. Uh, and when I say we, I just mean society writ large. Um, we uh, did not acknowledge that it was a structural journalism crisis. It wasn't like people would be able to just discover a new business model. It wasn't like uh, we could shame news organizations into doing a better job. 
Um, we knew that then, and it's become increasingly glaringly obvious now that the market won't support the level of journalism that we need. So uh, the good news is that I do think now, uh, perhaps just because clearly nothing else is working, people are starting to move more towards focusing on these kind of structural, you know, the, the notion that we need structural alternatives to a failing commercial model. Um, and of course, with the rise of Google and Facebook, which are not the cause of the journalism crisis, but have even further exacerbated it, I think um, there is a shift in public opinion and also an increasing appreciation, a newfound respect for the fourth estate. I think you started to see this with the during the early Trump years, and certainly you saw this uh, more during the, the global pandemic, where people begin to increasingly realize that we must have journalism. You know, it, it, it's not an exaggeration to say that it's a life and death uh, matter of whether we have a functional press or not. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you end on that note because um, there's a line in the in the paper that I think sums that up well. And I'll, I'll read it for the listeners because I think it's interesting. So... It's, quote, further complicating this challenge is the historical predicament of multiple crises currently facing the United States, including the financial meltdown, the crumbling healthcare system, and of thousands of troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. Journalism simply does not rank as high in the public consciousness. And it's interesting because a lot of those uh, uh, crises still still are, are uh, we're still dealing with the, some of those today. Um, but something, you know, when I read your paper and then the Columbia Journalism Review article, which eventually I want to get into, but I want to sort of preface the, the, the conversation around this. It seems to me that like none of this is going to be possible trying to solve the, the structural issues that you're referring to. None of it is going to be possible without like a certain amount of buy-in from the citizenry, right? Like, like it can't just be, you know, and it's nothing against you or nothing against, uh, you know, my group of journalists, but it just, it can't be like a few academics and some journalists that are talking about this, right? It has to be, I think people are going to, a wide group of people are actually going to have really have to care about this. Do you see that trend changing? And would you agree, would you agree with that assessment too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think what you're putting your finger on is that this must be a bottom up, uh, you know, the grassroots driven endeavor. It can't just be decided top down, you know, that we have a, a some sort of template that we can slap down uh, onto things and make it all better through some sort of you know policy magic. It really does have to be driven by the public. It should be public, not just in name only, but actually our media system should be publicly owned and democratically um, governed. And I think that is the end uh, objective, even though going back to this 2009 report um, that I, I'm pleasantly surprised that we're talking about because it has been largely forgotten, I'm afraid, um, but it was titled Saving Journalism, but we didn't really mean 
simply salvaging the status quo, right? We were talking about reinventing journalism. And I think that has to be too often when people hear these kinds of discussions, they assume we're, you know, hearkening back to some mythological golden era of journalism. And that we're just trying to shore up, you know, trying to go back to this great past, which, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. It has always been horribly flawed. There have been, especially communities of color, have been completely written out of and, and, and not served by this, uh, by this media system. So, you know, we want to be clear that we should reinvent it. But so much of this is really just letting journalists be journalists, right? It's about liberating journalists to do the work that they went into the profession to do in the first place. Um, so I do, I think all these points need to be kept in focus and you're absolutely right. It has to have popular consent. It just can't be, which is becoming increasingly difficult to do, especially now that some of these issues have become so, uh, publicized, uh, or, or sorry, politicized. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a real challenge, but the stakes could be higher. You know, our democracy does depend on this. It's, I don't think that's hyperbolic. And so I do think we can, we can figure it out, but it, it's going to, it's going to take a lot of work and we really have to frame it. I think the first point, first point is to make clear that the market is not going to solve this. And in a country that's so steeped in in market fundamentalism, that's always a difficult argument to make, but it's one that we must make. What has made you come to that conclusion? Because, I mean, you know, what I'm about to say, I don't agree with because, you know, looking at the local media landscape, um, obviously, makes this untrue but you know some observers they might say oh well look at the look how well the new york times or the washington post or those large national organizations have done wouldn't that wouldn't you say that in a sense the market has at least helped those organizations what what would you say to to someone who argued that sure i mean i think to casual observers uh, and indeed, actually, there's empirical evidence backing this up. The Pew, a Pew Research uh, Center survey um, in 2019, uh, I think it still would show pretty much similar. Maybe it's changed a little bit since the pan- pandemic. It basically showed that the overwhelming uh, majority of Americans thought local journalism was doing well you know, that in terms of you know financial uh, sustainability. They had no idea that there was this crisis. So among you know, among uh, us, you know, elites, and your listeners can't see that I'm putting it into scare quotes saying elites, but those of us who are news junkies and really focus on these issues, um, uh, you know, are painfully aware of this, but I think in the broader public consciousness, there often isn't the same level of awareness exactly the depths of this local journalism crisis. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you can look at the New York Times, which actually is indeed doing better than it's ever done in terms of number of journalists employed. Um, and of course, casual observers might think, you know, at their fingertips, they have these gateways into vast realms of social media driven information. Um, so in many ways, it might seem like we have more information than ever before. But if you peel back the surface, you peel back some layers, you see that really it's just the big three newspapers. It's the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, that are thriving. 
um, and perhaps a few niche outlets, but almost all other uh, newspapers are, are in varying degrees of distress. Uh, and if you look at our social media feeds, most of that information are still is still coming from, even in its beleaguered state, still coming from the incumbent newspaper publishers. Um, so that's where most of our original information is still coming from. So if you look beyond the veneer, uh, you see that actually structurally speaking, our news media system is not doing well at all. And of course, going forward, if we're just relying on these big players, you're basically creating a new, you know, new news divides where people who can pay for news, because most of this, most of these sources of news are behind paywalls. Um, so it's requiring people to pay for reliable news and information while everyone else is served up clickbait and various forms of mis and disinformation through social media. Huh. Well, I, I want to move on to the, the um, Columbia Journalism Review article. So I'll sort of lay out the basic idea of it. And it's that um, compared to, so in the United States, um, compared to other countries like the United Kingdom, Norway, and Sweden, uh, the U.S. has severely underfunded, and those are those are the words you uh, you and uh, Timothy use in your piece. It's public media infrastructure. Um, you point out that the U.S. spends a dollar and forty cents per capita on public media, uh, while those other countries that I just mentioned they spend around a hundred dollars, which is a crazy gap. Um, I I, I kind of I want to start, and it, we we don't have to spend too much time on this, but I wanted just to get a quick sense of history on publicly funded media in the United States. Um, like, has the U.S. government, have they always been in the business of providing money for public journalism? Like, what what has that traditionally looked like over the years? Yeah, that that's an excellent question. And it really depends on exactly what kind of media we're referring to. If we're talking about public broadcasting, then that has a much um, more recent history, uh, or at least the history is not nearly as long as it is compared to most other uh, democratic countries. Our, um, our uh, public broadcasting system was established in the late 60s and, and early 70s, um, whereas most uh, countries had vibrant public broadcasting systems by the 1930s and 40s. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one key difference. But one thing I do want to point out which many Americans are often surprised to hear this, that me various kinds of media subsidies actually go back to the dawn of the U.S. Republic when we created our postal system. And at that time, in the late 1700s, the primary function of the postal system was to disseminate newspapers. Uh, as much as 95% of the weight of the post, it weren't letters to, to mom. These it were newspapers being distributed to far-flung communities uh, across the country. And so you really need to see it in that context that our first major communication uh, network was primarily a newspaper delivery infrastructure. And uh, in this sense, we've, you know, subsidizing media is as American as apple pie. Um, but unfortunately, that did not translate to 
um, creating a very strong public broadcasting system until much later, and really only because of the, the efforts of grassroots activists and educators who had been um, advocating for this for decades um, before we eventually did have uh, the Public Broadcasting Act under the, the Johnson administration. And this only came about because of this very uh, pronounced market failure that you know our commercial broadcasting simply was not providing the level of educational fare that a democratic society requires. And I think there are a lot of interesting parallels between what was happening then and what's happening today with the collapse of the commercial newspaper industry when again, we have this systemic market failure that is so glaringly obvious. Um, And I really think that, and indeed what we argued in that Columbia Journalism Review article is that once again, we need to create a public option for the 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 media that the market will no longer support. Mm-hmm. Well, when we when we're looking at that gap of a dollar and forty cents compared to um, one hundred dollars in uh, countries like Norway and, and the United Kingdom. Um, why has the what what can explain that gap? Like why why has the government traditionally underfunded its public media is it because of that reliance on the market economy you were talking about or are or there like political reasons for it like what what's the source of that gap yes i would say all the above um and to go back to this history that i think helps explain this gap um again something that most americans aren't aware of and i would point to some of the work that my uh mentor whom i mentioned earlier bob mcchesney Uh, did early in his career, which was to show that early in the 30s, when we were first establishing our broadcast media system, we were much closer to to, to say that we almost ended up with a BBC model would be an exaggeration. But we were much closer to have a much more publicly focused and publicly financed uh, nonprofit, non-commercial broadcast system than what we actually ended up with. Um, it narrowly missed uh, in the in the U.S. Senate um, in the early 30s, and so what we ended up with, I don't think, reflects uh, democratic popular will. It was rather an elite decision that set us down this path that basically determined that we would have this extremely commercialized media system compared to most other uh, democratic uh, countries on on the planet, and indeed. Whenever the BBC or the CBC or the ABC, some of the other top public broadcasting systems on the planet, whenever they would have moments of crisis where their sort of, you know, their their public mission was being called into question, they would point to the U.S. and say, look, we don't want that to happen to us. (laughs) We don't want this advertising driven, extremely commercialized, trivialized uh, media system Um, take root in our country. So we actually provided them with a bit of a foil (laughs) to to make sure that they uh, maintained a a robust uh, public media system. And so, you know, I go through this history oftentimes just to denaturalize what we have now, what we've inherited here in the United States and to show that this kind of libertarian model was not inevitable. It wasn't some sort of natural development. It reflects 
the uh, the interests that won out over others, and more specifically, the commercial interests that prevailed earlier in our history. And unfortunately, we went down the wrong path. Hmm. One element that I of of this conversation that I think is is interesting is how um, sort of the left and the right perceive the trustworthiness of news. Um, and I, and I know you mentioned this in your piece that I think trust in the media on the left is higher than trust in the media on the right, but overall trust in local news is high, rel- relatively high in, on, in, in most segments of American society. Um, do you, do you think that this is like the, this polarization between the parties when it comes to news? Do you think that that is a major barrier, or do you think that that's something that, if we were actually to start moving ahead with trying to fund uh, public media a little bit more, it wouldn't be too much of a worry? Like, how does that fit, fit into the equation? Yeah, great question. And I mean, I think you're putting your finger on some, on a very important point, which is that even among conservatives who hate the media, uh, who distrust the media, when you start talking about their local newspaper or local broadcaster, suddenly they have warm, fuzzy feelings um, about their local media. So I do think that's a key leverage point. And even and there was an earlier study that was published by the Columbia Journalism Review that, I, that that we cite in our piece, which showed that even among Trump supporters, trust levels towards public media, towards public broadcasting, were relatively high, or at least higher, uh, you know, compared to other uh, compared to trust levels towards other forms of media. So even with our public broadcasting. I think that's another potential leverage point where we could have some kind of bipartisan consensus. Now, it's tenuous, um, but we do see even and I know this from my brief stint working in a congressional office where, you know, every couple of years and I'm sure we all used to receive these chain emails about, you know, like saving Big Bird and, you know, they're trying to kill Elmo. But even among a lot of conservative um, uh, lawmakers, um, you know, they would hear from their constituents among the sort of rank and file uh, Republicans that actually they like public broadcasting. They don't want to get rid of it. So um, there's a lot of polling data to back this up. Uh, so I do think that's something that we can we can, you know, hopefully rely on going forward or try to further develop and cultivate. But one mm-hmm. other la- last point I want to make that I, did, I don't think I, I did quite put my finger on earlier which is, you know, when I was talking about the postal system, the, the, the founders of the Republic, which whom we're supposed to, you know, revere uh, for all their flaws. One thing that they did have right was that they didn't trust the market to serve all these needs. Right. They had this debate about, you know, whether the postal system should simply pay for itself or whether it needed to be subsidized. And they knew way back then that you cannot rely on the market to provide all of our information needs. And I think there's this core understanding that we have to recover. Um, and it's really a more recent phenomenon when we became in the US so 
market libertarian. You know, this is more of a kind of neoliberal drift that happened here. Um, and I think many of these assumptions are now called into question. Going back to your earlier point, I think we were a little too quick back in 2009 to assume that market fundamentalism had, had finally crumbled. These were the early Obama years when we thought we'd have a new New Deal and that didn't quite pan out uh, the way we had hoped. But I think now you are beginning to see that, especially among young people today, um, they're not as enthralled to the market. They see very clearly what the market's doing to all areas of life, um, including the life of our planet. Uh, so I think that um, we're going to start seeing these openings, these opportunities to try to recover public goods and to unhook things from the market. Yeah. Do you so on this show, you know, one of the questions that I've asked people has been um, when it comes to a business model, what do you think is the best path forward? The answer that I usually get and the answer that I've gotten even off the podcast too is, oh, we. I think it's like a, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it's like a patchwork of, you know, nonprofit, co- uh, commercial, um, uh, you know, pu- public media, uh, endowments, that kind of stuff. That That's the answer I usually get. Um, the sense I'm getting from you, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that is that public media is the is the most effective path forward when it comes to trying to chip away at this crisis. Is that true? Do you think that this is the way forward? We we have to just devote ourselves 100% to this public like funding public media will will it the history has shown that this is in the past 10 15 years that this is the only way forward. Would you agree with that? Sure. I want to unpack it just a little bit, though, uh, because there is a fair amount of nuance. I mean, um, I do think that and I understand the patchwork argument. And indeed, you know, that's sort of where we're heading. And that's better than nothing. Um, But we have to be clear about the limitations. um, If we think that, you know, we're going to let you we're going to fight it out community by community. You know, we're going to hope that maybe in certain places we'll cobble together enough committed activists and there might be some rich benefactors and we might be able to coerce Google and Facebook into you know, funding one particular initiative, but that's not a systemic approach. And what the, one of the benefits that a public model has is that it can be committed to a universal service ethic, which basically assumes that all Americans and all communities must have access to a baseline level of news and information so that you don't have this kind of redlining. If you leave it up to the market, basically it will determine that only rich people, only those who are willing or able to pay for their news will have that kind of access. And that's just not an ideal situation for any kind of democracy. So um, with a public model, you can actually have this systemic approach um, and not rely on you know individual initiatives or uh, benevolent billionaires, which of course uh, we know not all billionaires are benevolent. Um, so you know that's that's why you know whatever your ideological predisposition might be, I think that the last best hope for the level of journalism that democratic society needs is a public model. But that said, 
we need to be clear that we're not just talking about NPR and PBS, right? We're talking about a truly publicly owned and operated uh, media system, one that doesn't exist right now, you know? So we have to have this kind of utopian vision of not what's here now, but really to expand our imagination of what's possible, what we need going forward. And this is where I would start likening, you know, I call for something, talk about utopianism, I call for having a public media center in every community. Um, I think that is the goal. I mentioned earlier the independent media center um, movement that I was part of many years ago. I think that's what inspires me now to try to imagine this kind of public media center, which think of like the, the local public school, um, you know, just something that every community has that would provide citizen journalism, but also access to public broadband services. It would be a multimedia uh, center. That's That would be the goal. You know, that's, I think, the objective that we should work towards. Uh, we're nowhere near that now, but that would be the best structural fix. When I talk about a public option, that's what I'm imagining. Mm, okay. Okay. Do you, um, wh- one of the uh, potential like snags in all of this that I foresee, um, but maybe you can prove me wrong on this, is that is is like the potential worry that if the government was to lay out billions of dollars for for immediate infrastructure, um, that potentially there would be some sort of like influence by the government on that uh, on that me- media infrastructure. Is that a worry of yours? It, it, or do you think the fact that like right now that doesn't exist too much is a good sign that it wouldn't exist if we sort of expanded it? Like wh- how, how do you f- figure that all out in, in, in this? Yes, this concern invariably comes up uh, in these conversations and for good reason. I mean, that's a state capture of a public media system is a structural vulnerability uh, that has to be negotiated. But I look at most democratic countries around the world and they have figured this out uh, to varying degrees of success. I mean, there's certainly case studies that uh, we can point to that where they didn't figure it out or where things went horribly awry. Um, But I do think that there are safeguards and structural firewalls that can be put into place. And I keep it's it starts sounding a little bit trite, but I keep coming back to this idea that everything must be radically democratized. Right. So I think that these local public media centers that I'm that I'm talking about need to be federally guaranteed so that the funding is guaranteed at the federal level, but they need to be locally determined. You know, this power needs to be devolved to the state levels, to the local community levels, and basically allocated, these resources need to be allocated in ways where they go to the areas of greatest need, right? So the news deserts, we keep hearing about this phrase news deserts, which is happening before our eyes where entire communities and regions across the country lack access to any local news media whatsoever. Um, That's a huge problem and it's a growing problem. So, um, you know, I think that we can we can figure this out, but it is you know, we're going to have to make sure that you don't have a federal uh, bureaucracy that's making all the decisions. Um, We can't have, you know, whichever party is in power to be able. And we saw this under Trump, the voice of America. He tried to 
take that over. You know, that's a good exhibit A of like what can go wrong with these systems. But I don't think that's inevitable, right? I think that we can build it, you know, institutionally design it so that it is not as vulnerable to that kind of top-down state capture. Mm-hmm. Are there any, um, I don't know, local, state, uh, or kind of federal uh, figures out there that you could point our listeners to that are thinking about these issues, politicians, um, legislators, anyone who is is trying to you know through through legislation whether it's publicly funded media or 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 just something else within sort of the 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 government um trying to solve this issue yes i mean i do think there are a number of promising uh initiatives that we can point to i mean one um in new jersey for example they have a civic information consortium that the uh, government is funding, where it's putting forward, I think they're up to $2 million uh, thus far, um, focused on local journalism efforts. Um, it's, it's not enough, but it's a start, and it's a proof of concept that even state governments um, can subsidize uh, local journalism. And, and indeed, a lot of, you know, we went, going back to that figure you mentioned earlier, where it's $1.40 per person, per year in the United States that we pay towards our public broadcasting. But various states kick in extra money on top of that. Not a lot, not enough. But it just shows you that we also can be doing things. We also could be doing things like municipal newspapers, which is something I write about in my recent book, um, which I I encourage your listeners to check out if they have the chance. Um, And and what is the title of it? So you can, for our listeners? Sure, sure. I always forget to plug my... uh, my book, it's uh, Democracy Without Journalism, question mark, um, a rhetorical question, of course. But that's where I go into a lot of this history that we're discussing. And I talk about these various um, alternatives and, and policy reforms that are that are needed to create this more democratic uh, media system. Um, but there I talk about this experiment in the early 1900s in Los Angeles that had a municipal a newspaper that was owned by the people. Um, it was publicly funded, um, and it was um, very uh, devoted to um, uh, including a range of uh, political viewpoints, everything from socialist and labor parties to conservative Republican um, parties. So um, so we've done this before. Other countries have, have experimented with these. In many countries, they directly subsidize their newspapers or in also indirectly subsidize them so that you don't end up with one newspaper dominated uh, markets. So it's a way to maintain a certain level of media diversity. Um, so if we look historically and we look internationally, we see all kinds of experiments that if nothing else, they can broaden our imagination here in the U.S. about what's possible. Got it. Okay. Well, I have one last question for you. And uh, we can we can make it quick because I know you're you you got to run. Um, is there a uh, and and I ask this question to to all my uh, guests. Is there a journalist out there, or maybe a, in 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 your case, uh, a better uh, uh, option would be uh, like a, a a newspaper or a media entity that you think is really doing some groundbreaking work right now and trying to chip away the the 
crisis face, facing local journalism? There, there are a number. Uh, I have a number of, of uh, favorite journalists and, and news outlets, and I, I, I'm very uh, excited by my own personal uh, news media diet. However, um, I'll spare your listeners, and I, I'll go back and mention what I've already hinted, talked about briefly a couple times, but this independent media center ideal, um, which, whose slogan was, don't hate the media, be the media. And it was this very kind of anarchic ideal of, you know, we all can get together and, and have these kind of public or, or sometimes referred to as people's newsrooms. And I want to recover that anarchic ideal, but maybe combine it with a sort of socialist uh, approach, which is to make sure that we have these public, these, these news cooperatives in every community but that they're publicly funded, right? So that it's the money is there because one of the one of the weaknesses of the independent media center model was that it was so reliant on volunteer labor, right? That so much of it was like you'd have these committed activists come together and they did brilliant stuff. I don't want to uh you know diminish anything that they were able to to achieve, but unfortunately when you have an institution so reliant on on that kind of you know free volunteers labor you're going to guarantee that certain people won't ever be able to participate in that kind of uh model and really you want to have a situation where people are paid decent livelihoods right to be journalists right to to go out on their beats to cover city hall and 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 the local school board and the state legislature like you want people who are paid well and have benefits um, to do those kinds of jobs. So that's where I feel like we can combine the anarchic and the socialistic uh, utopian ideals to create the media we need. All right. Well, hey, Victor, this has been a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I've, we've, we've gone to many different places, and uh, I think, uh, I think it's, been, it's been great. So I appreciate you coming on the American Dispatch podcast. Thank you uh, again. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Gabe. It was great talking to you. Thank you for listening to the American Dispatch podcast. To hear more episodes, you can go on any of your favorite podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To learn more about this podcast, go to amdipodcast.com dot substack dot com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.